I was Jason, lead pastor at Casper Alliance Church. Churks. Church. Casper Alliance Church. Thanks for stopping by our weekly teaching podcast. This is uh, from our Sunday morning worship gathering. We're going through the book of Esther right now. Uh, This is Esther 5, 6, and 7 today, and it's the divine reversal. Um, So, hope you enjoy. Uh, Thanks for listening. We do appreciate you. So I've sang that song. It was written in 1993, that song. And one of the things that's always made me laugh about that is a beautiful message. That, that line that says, we'll go to a much better place. And like, if you're, if you're a 17-year-old sitting in church in 1993 as I was, I'd be like, yeah, a much better place is Wendy's. <laughs> you're like, get us out of the service so we can go have some lunch. Like that's, like, it, but when we... I think the line, we will go to a much better place. We have some indication or some pictures or, or maybe even like a, a hope of what a much better place looks like. Um, but we, it's hard to us, for us to describe it in, in real, like what it feels like. We can describe today. We can describe what our home looks like. We can describe what the streets look like. We can, des- we can describe Casper or where places that you've been But to say we're gonna go to a much better place, first of all, you're wrestling with the inevitability that none of us get out of. We're all going to pass, we're all going to die at some point. And and then we're all going, like we have a, we have to deal with the fact that we're gonna go somewhere after we die. And it's, it's this like beautiful phrase of, it's gonna be better than this. I don't know how to describe it. Is it gonna be Chuck E. Cheese? I don't know. It's gonna be Chuck E. Cheese with better pizza, maybe. I mean, we, like who, like we have some indication and we have some pictures, but it really is true to say we're going to a much better place. And that's a beautiful promise that we get when we say, I love you, Jesus. I'm going to commit my ways to you. I'm going to orient my life around you. I'm going to put my faith in you. I trust that it's going to be a much better place. And that's, that's encouraging but I definitely remember as a teenager going, "Mm, much better could be a lot of things over this. Esther, we're in Esther. Esther five. Anybody uh, tired? There's a... uh, I don't say this very often. There's like a sloppy energy in the room today. <laughs> Just, it's like, ugh. everybody, how many of you are thinking about lunch and a nap? Like, that's like a real thing. Most, I'm, a lunch and a nap. I have a manuscript today. Should I just read it? And we're done, we're done? <laughs> We're going to read through three chapters today, Esther 5, 6, and 7. And we'll get there in a second. Um, Esther's a beautiful story. We've gotten to a lot of it. It's got good guys, bad guys, characters. We celebrated Purim this last week. I didn't get to fully dive in because there was multiple things happening that I needed to be at, which is, it was wonderful. Like, there's a lot of business that was going down on, on Wednesday night. Kids were yelling at one of our elders, John, screaming in his face. I'm not going to tell which kid was screaming inappropriately, but one of them was. 
It wasn't a Caleb. It wasn't a Caleb, but it did start with a J. <laughs> it was awesome. Kids were yelling. It was a blast. Dressed up, costumes, because Esther transcends and is able, we're able to grab it and hold on to it and go, I understand the story. I understand the story of good versus evil. I understand the story of, of like heroes and villains. I understand the story of, 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 um, of, of rescue. And so one of the things we're going to wrestle, not even wrestle, we're going to talk about today is, is what's called a divine reversal. Um, Esther is all about the divine reversal. It's also fun, like it has this fun word. Can, everybody can follow, say chiasm. 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 Anybody know what that is? I asked Adrienne if she knew what that was, and she brought out an anatomy book and showed me a picture of it. I'm like, what in the world? So um, everybody make a big X. That's the Greek letter, chi. That's the reversal. A chiasm is a literal device to where it's a point where this X marks the spot and the story turns and changes. It goes the other direction. A lot of times in literature, it's, it'll set up in a formula like this. If you, go, if you deep dive into English, which some of you might, it'll set up like this, A, B, C, C, B, A. Like there's an A part of the story, a B part of the story, a C part of the story, then the big X, the, the reversal, and then C, B, A. So right here, we ended last week with, with chapter four. Five is where the X happens. So I've talked about this a lot. I, I promise one month of no what? No jujitsu stories. March 12th marks one month, but it's not a jujitsu story. It's actually fat man wrestling. When I... Somebody, who snickered? Was that you? That was my kid. In high school, I grew up in York, Nebraska. I've talked about that a lot. York, Nebraska, we had uh, state champion wrestlers. If you go back and look at the 90s, uh, I don't even know if that exists as far as history goes, but like York, Nebraska had state champions. They won state a couple of times as a team. And so when I was a freshman, I, I was 152 pounds. Uh, I had to, well, I was really like 158, and I had to cut like six pounds to wrestle at 152, and I was five foot two. So Carter, come here for a second. Carter got the beautiful divine reversal called puberty. <laughs> Carter, Carter was 152 pounds and five foot two, and then went bloop. You guys remember? Probably you didn't because it happened in like three weeks. So now Carter needs a haircut. Carter needs a haircut. Carter's about five. Is he taller than me? So Carter's about 5'10", 5'10 and a penny. I'm 5'11". We both have elevator shoes on right now. Yours is a little bit bigger than mine. But Carter got what is called the divine reversal, which all of you young men are looking for. The, it's puberty. That's what happens. And you just go, boom. So up until that point, your face gets more round and your belly gets a little bit more big. And then all of a sudden, poof, thank you. Now, Carter as a freshman was 150 pounds or an eighth grader was like 150 pounds. Pudgy. Pudgy. And now he's like 148 or something like that. I didn't get the beautiful divine reversal until I was a sophomore. 
So as a freshman, I'm 158 pounds wrestling guys who are men already. And so I learned from my wrestling coach, who was an elder, what's called the fat man role. The fat man role is a a beautiful tool that shocks and awes most people. So if I could survive the first round and I could win the coin toss for the second round, I wouldn't lose 15 to nothing. I would lose 15 to five. What happens with the, with the fat man role is if you can survive the first round, win the coin toss, you would choose down, the down position. Any wrestlers in here, you, you know what I'm talking about, the down position? So I would take bottom, and from that point, I did what was called a Gramby roll into a Turk. That's the technical name for it. Or the grip and rip. They work out the same way. One, you have to do a kind of a somersault, and that's more the shock and awe version of it. The second one, you just grip and roll to the side, and because you're a little pudgy and a little bit, you've got some weight on you, you're just leveraging momentum, puts the person on their back, you grab their leg, you get two points for reversal and three points for back, right? Five points. At that point, if you're like me, small and heavy and have prepubescent muscles, which are non-existent, you basically get beat up a little bit more and then you lose. Either you get pinned or 15 to five. But I did it all the time to guys. It would shock them. I remember distinctly one time this guy was taking me down. We were at a, we were at a small tournament. I think it was actually in Stromsburg, Nebraska. And I was wrestling against varsity guys and I was a junior varsity wrestler. And he would take me down, let me up. Take me down, let me up. Take me down, let me up. It was abuse is what it was. And all of a sudden it's 10. So you get two points for a takedown, one point for an escape. So you take me down, it would be 10 to five, right? We get through the first round, it's 10 to five. His point is he's trying to get to 25 points just so the thing's over. He knew that he was gonna beat me. It was just more fun for him. He's practicing all these different takedowns and I'm just getting blown up, right? I win the coin toss, take the bottom position and shock and awe happened. I did what's called a Gramby roll. If you wanna Google it later, you can look at it. Basically, you grab the wrist and you kind of post up and you somersault forward on your shoulder and they have no idea that it's happening and they end up on their back because their natural instinct is to follow you. You grab their, their outside leg and just lay on them and you get two points for reversal, three points for the, them being on their back and it's five points, that was it. But when I did it, this little five foot two, 152 pound little boy does this to a senior The crowd went wild, and then I lost. But it was awesome for like one minute. It was this minute where I was like, I reversed this human being, and he had no idea what happened, and all of a sudden, he's on his back. And he didn't know where it came from, out of nowhere, because I was just food to him. I was the warm-up match. This is what's gonna happen in this story. Now, out of nowhere, God's gonna reverse the story. Now remember, we ended chapter four with, for such a time as this, Mordecai kind of lays on the guilt trip. Maybe you were brought here for this time, this purpose, to rescue God's people. And remember what Mordecai said to to Esther before that. If you don't wanna step up to the plate, our, our deliverance will come from somewhere. So let's look at this. Let's read the story. I might stop in parts of it just to talk about it, but I think the story speaks for itself. 
On the third day, Esther dressed in her royal clothing and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtroom facing its entrance. As soon as, king, as soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she gained favor with him. The king extended the gold scepter in his hand toward Esther, and she approached and touched the tip of the scepter. What is it, Queen Esther? The king asked her. Whatever you want, even half of the kingdom will be given to you. Now remember, I don't know if we talked about this, but when he says half of the kingdom, it's not just that like, is, he, is Xerxes going to literally give her half the kingdom? Probably not. But it lo- it's more like, I favor you. I love you as much as my human brain can love you. I oogle you is really what's happening here. If he could, ca- I can't call you. That's what's happening. I'll give you whatever you want. You just let me know. That's what's going on. That's the heartbeat of what's happening. But she's finding favor and she's being savvy. If it pleases the king, Esther replied, may the king and Haman come today to the banquet. I have prepared for them. The king said, hurry and get Haman so we can do as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. While drinking the wine, the king asked Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom will be done. Esther answered, this is my petition and my request. If I have found favor in the eyes of the king and it pleases the king to grant my petition, perform my request, may the king and Haman come To the banquet, I will prepare for them tomorrow. I will do what the king has asked. Interesting. She didn't give the real request right there. She's like, let's long con this one. Let's set them up for a little bit more. Let's let them stew and feel the good juices of the good wine and be like, this was a great party. Let's come party again tomorrow. You know, Esther puts on a pretty solid party. I kind of like it. That day, verse 9, Haman left full of joy and in good spirits. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble in fear at his presence, Haman was filled with rage towards Mordecai. Yet Haman controlled himself and went home. He sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh to join him. Then Haman described for them his glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them all how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over the other officials and the royal staff. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. I I am invited again tomorrow to join her and the king. Still, none of this satisfies me since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. His wife, Zeresh, and all his friends told him, have them build a gallows 75 feet tall. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. The advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows constructed. We're going to keep reading here a second. I want to make a little comment. There's always somebody in your life that causes you stress. There's that one person. There's the one. You see them, they drive you bonkers. That person can get the best of you without saying a single word. Sometimes it's a sibling. 
Sometimes it's a mom or a dad. Sometimes it's a coworker or somebody that you've had a relationship with for 30 years. Whatever level you're at in your life, whether you're an eight-year-old or an 80-year-old, there's always that one person that just kind of bugs you and causes you to change your disposition. And you, you, it just happens. You walk up and you see them and you're like. And all the joy and the happiness and the, and the, um, the experiences of good that you had, even if you had like perfect devotions in the morning and you had your cup of coffee was beautiful and, and there was no, no snow and it was 80 degrees and there was palm trees randomly in Casper and you're driving in and nobody in Casper drove the way they normally drive in Casper and you get to the place where you work and you, and you normally are home, like here alone, but there's the right kind of people that come, but then you see that one guy, and everybody's thinking, who's that one guy that Jason's talking about? I'm not, there isn't one. But you see that person that you work with, or you, or, and it's just like, ugh. and it sucks your, your good vibes out. How do you handle that person? That's right. <laughs> Elder Emeritus said it, not me. <laughs> we have a feeling towards people. A lot of you who are in school, public school, I mean, maybe even you homeschoolers who see your siblings who just drive you bonkers. I'm just trying to get this done today and all you do is interrupt me. I'm not playing Legos with you today. There is, there is something that happens inside of the human heart when we just stack irritation and we attribute it to a person that we just continue to build and get frustrated by them. No matter what they are. This is the first time, like, Mordecai, Mordecai is, like, targeted, but not the first time he's targeted, but, like, Haman says, Mordecai, the Jew. It's very, like, there's this evil tone that happens, and, the, and he's, I just hate him. And I'm going to do everything in my life to ruin him. Now, what does, what does Haman do? He gathers his people. He gathers his people, people who are not going to give him swell advice. People are not going to lead him towards the path of righteousness. People are not going to be like, like, good wise counsel will be like, listen, Haman, you are wealthy. You've been invited to the party. The queen loves you. It, it's just Mordecai. Who cares? Leave him alone. He's, he's nothing. He's a pebble. There's bigger fish to fry. Mm. So here's the deal. What happens is, is with these people that you have in your life, and I know you all have them, because I have them, when they grow and grow and grow, and you never deal with it. You never take it to the Lord. You never confront it. You never try to figure it out. You never understand why you feel a certain sort of way when you come in contact with this person. When you never deal with that and you just ignore it, it is a, I say this a lot right now, it's a virus to your life. And you will do anything and everything to cause that person to feel distant or away from you. That is the antithesis of the Christian community. 
I'm saying this from my own heart. I've done that in my life. I've had people that I've been co-pastors with where I couldn't stand and I just wanted to put them on the sidelines and, and I, would, I would find ways to talk bad about them. I'd find ways to have people support the way I feel about them. I would entertain discussion and complain about these types of things that I don't like. Right or wrong, it would, still, it would still burden me in a way to where it didn't give me the freedom to lead or it actually removed me from the blessing that God was trying to do in relationship and in life and in the way in which we're supposed to interact with the world. I've said it a hundred times in this place, there's nothing worse than angry believers, complaining believers, Amen. believers who look just like everyone else in the world. It's the worst and then when we surround ourselves with like-minded, what's beautiful here is, is very fun as you read the story. It's written so elegantly. The writer is going, paying emphasis to Mordecai's Jewish background. The storyteller is, is reminding you who he is for this divine reversal that's about ready to happen. This fat man role, this X marks the spot Chapter six, that night, sleep escaped the king. So he ordered the book recording daily events to be brought and read to the king. So when I read this, I'm like, that's like counting sheep, right? Bring me the most boring thing you have and read it to me so I can fall asleep. They found the written report of how Mordecai had informed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the entrance when they planned to assassinate King Xerxes. The king inquired, what honor and special recognition have been given to Mordecai for this act? The king's personal attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. The king asked, who is in the court? Now Haman has, was just entering the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for him. The divine reversal. Sleep escapes me. Bring me something boring to read. Somebody bring some sort of census. It just, by happen chance, reads the very story of how Mordecai had protected the king. It just so happens that the one entering the gates wants to kill Mordecai, who protected the king. Just coincidence total coincidence. So if you're a reader and you're going, what? Now you've all read books, right? It's like, um, one of the first books I remember reading was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I didn't realize the whole time that Willy Wonka was the bad guy. Everybody's like, is he? I mean, he killed kids. Just kidding. But it was one of the first books that I remember reading. And every single time you, like one of the kids entered into, entered into the story to became the kind of the front and center story, something crazy happened to him. But as the story set up, you couldn't stand these children. You couldn't, you were so glad that Mike TV got shrunk. Am I giving that away for anybody, by the way? <laughs> You're so glad that Augustus Gloop gets shot up that thing and sucked. You're so glad that what's her name, the Barry girl, like turns into that big, what is her name? 
violet snozberries taste like snozberries. You just you want her to be destroyed. And every single time, you're like, yes! I'm so excited for these people. I remember reading that story and just being like, this is amazing and being stuck. That's what's happening here. The reader is going, really, the king couldn't sleep. And he read this and it reminded him. Okay. The king's attendants, verse five, answered him, Haman is there standing in the court. Have him enter, the king ordered. Haman entered and the king asked, what should be done with the man the king wants to honor? Haman thought to himself, who is it? the king would want to honor more than me. Haman told the king, for the man the king wants to honor, have them bring a royal garment and the king himself has worn and a horse the king himself has ridden, which has a royal crown on its head. Put that garment on the horse under the, under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials and to have them clothe the man the king wants to honor, parade on the horse through the city square and call out before him. This is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. The king told Haman, hurry and do just as you propose. Take the garment and horse for Mordecai the Jew. See, like a normal way in which you would say that is like, hey, go get Mordecai. And here's what we're going to do for Mordecai. But, be, but before Haman gets to hear who the person is, Xerxes says, here's all the things I want you to do. I want you to clothe him. I want you to put him on a beautiful horse. I want you to pray him around the city. And I want you to chant, here is Mordecai. Mordecai, the savior of the king. <laughs> the king told Haman, hurry, just go propose. Take the garment and the horse of Mordecai, the Jew who's sitting at the king's gate. Do not leave out anything I have suggested. So Haman took the garment and the horse. He clothed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square, calling out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. You think, you think Haman was more frustrated because he was embarrassed in front of his friends? Or because he just really couldn't stand Mordecai? When, you have your, when your arch enemy is elevated and has a place of honor or is promoted or is given a position that you deserve or gets the last piece of cheese on the charcuterie board, <laughs> just thinking of it like a modern-day equivalent to being pained. We all love cheese, right? You guys don't love cheese? All right, well, guess you're not Americans. When the last... When that thing happens to where the person that you're frustrated with gets elevated, it's so demoralizing. But, but beyond that, to know that you talked and gossiped and like tried to plan the, the demise of this person with people that you feel are your, your best people, the embarrassment that you feel with them is probably even worse. Verse 12, that Mordecai returned to the king's gate but Haman hurried off home, mournful with his head covered. Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and his, all his friends everything that had happened. His advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, Since Mordecai is Jewish and you have begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. While they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and rushed Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. Oh, we forgot about the banquet. 
Mordecai isn't even, or uh, Haman isn't even given time to like truly process. And in fact, when he gets with his people, the people are like, in, in, in the Hebrew text, this is like an angel has befelt upon, like Gabriel has kicked you in the pants is what, it, is what it's saying. That um, um, actually it's a root word, well, I'm not even gonna get into it, but uh, like if you look up Nephilim, this, this word here that, that you've been pushed over. Like there, there is something beyond human control happening to you. This is weird what's going on. There is no way this is possible. This is from some other source. But, they, but Haman doesn't even get a chance to grieve, to get frustrated, to stir himself up, to come up with another plan. Does scheme again. He just gets rushed off to the second banquet that Esther had prepared. The king and Haman, verse 1 of chapter 7, came to feast with Esther and the queen. Once again, on the second day, while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to half the kingdom will be done. Queen Esther answered, if I found favor with you, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, here it is, spare my life, this is my request, and spare my people. This is my desire. This is the big reveal. This is the like, what? She took the mask off. She revealed, she's beginning to reveal who she actually is. For my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. King Xerxes spoke up and asked the Queen Esther, who is this and where is the one who would devise such a scheme? Esther answered, the adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. It's like a courtroom drama. It's that guy. Haman stood terrified before the king and queen the king arose in anger and went from where they were drinking wine to the palace garden. Haman remained to beg, the, beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. This is put very lightly, very lightly for what is actually happening. Many, many theologians, many commentaries say that Haman was assaulting Esther. Now imagine you're like, know that the king is planning your death and figuring out something terrible, and you're going to double down by hurting the thing that sentenced you to that death. When evil has babies, that's what this looks like. And evil always has babies. If we had... The king exclaimed, just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, would he actually violate the queen while I'm in the house? As soon as that statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs, said, there is a gal 75 feet tall. How convenient. Just appeared out of nowhere. Haman's house that he made for Mordecai, who gave the report and saved the king. The king said, hang him on it. They hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's anger subsided. Divine reversals. 
divine reversals. The big, the big X, X marks the spot. Ask the question, why? why did the king have trouble sleeping? Why did the king choose to have somebody read the, the annals of Persian history to him? Is it an accident that they turned to the exact page to talk about the exact person that was the target of his second in command? Why did the king happen to not remember that he, they hadn't rewarded or done anything special for Mordecai? Is this all just another random coincidence? The point is, is no follower of Yahweh, no believer in Jesus, no one can read this as they get to the end of the story and say, God's not in control, is in control. It's more than blind chance. It's more than a quinky dink. It's more than some sort of silly story. God's providence is active and moving. Remember telemarketers? That used to be a thing we used to get every now and again. I don't know if anybody's getting telemarketers. So you guys still get telemarketers? I have a solution for you. They'll never call you back. I used to do this to people. I would get the phone call. They would be like, they wouldn't even, you know, they start talking before you really, hello? And blah, 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 blah. I'm like, whoa, 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 stop, 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 stop. You're not going to believe this. Do you know that Jesus has a plan for your life? It's not a coincidence that you called me. Would you like to know about your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Click! <laughs> Every time. And eventually, they, like your number goes, don't call that guy, he's crazy. I would do that all the time. God's story is moving. We get to participate in it. It's not a divine coincidence. It's not random. God's in control. His providence is, is always moving. You cannot read Esther without seeing God's hand. It's not a coincidence. The divine reversal. Now, the way that Esther sets up is that chapter five is the pivot point of the entire story. So the first four chapters are like an A, B, C, D. Then you have the X. The X marks the spot. This is the moment where it looks like something changed. And then from there, the story actually reverses itself and mirrors the first half of the story. So how do we land the plane on this one? Here's the deal. Every last one of you, including me, needs the divine reversal in your own life. Some of you have already had it. Most of you have probably already had it. Life looked like this, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Looked a certain sort of way. Then the divine reversal, the cross. So we make the cross like this. A lot of people think the cross actually looked like an X. It's not a dink. This is the divine reversal of life. Everybody that interacts and comes to the foot of the cross and understands that at this moment where Jesus went to die for your sin and was resurrected three days later is the divine reversal on death, the divine reversal on sin, the divine reversal on darkness into hope, the divine reversal on true, real life and joy, from, from despair to joy, from death to life, from dark to light. It's the divine reversal. And all of you need that moment in your life, the change where you say, I'm going to submit to the cross of Christ, to the divine reversal in my life.
And Esther is a story that shows us that regardless of your involvement, God's going to continue to move his story and provide for his people and care for his creation. And there's heroes and villains, and there's moments in time, and there's famous verses like such a time as this, but the most important thing is the divine reversal. That God's desire is to see each and every one of his people know him and follow him and trust him. This is 12.15. I say that knowing that when you submit your life to Christ, it doesn't fix everything. It doesn't change everything. It doesn't change the way you feel about your enemy. It doesn't change how well our kids behave or how great our marriages are or how deep of a checkbook we have. It doesn't change those things. But it paints them with a different color. And there's moments as you find faith in Christ to where you have regular divine reversals with your behavior because your belief deepens. This is for the teenagers in the room. All of you teenagers. It's easy to say you don't know what it's like to be a teenager today, and you are right. It's hard to be a young person right now. The pressures are different but the behaviors are still the same. They're just like it was when I was in high school. They're the same sort of temptations, the same sort of problems, the same sort of struggles. And I promise you this, teenagers, and this applies to adults too, but teenagers specifically, when you encounter the living Christ and you submit to him, he will reverse the way in which you think. I've told this story a bunch. And I fit right in here. I've joked about this. Incredible potty mouth as a high schooler. Like sailor-esque, multiplied by 10. Ugly. God got a hold of me on my foulness, and it stopped. When I swear now, I choose to for effect. It's mostly for my children to scare them. It just stopped. Purity, the same thing. When God got a hold of me and said, you will be pure, be pure, commit to purity, like that. I'm a male, I'm a boy. I grew up right when the internet was launching, just like that. I know the sin is real, but teenagers hear me, it changes fast when you submit. Submit, submission, and maybe I'm, Maybe I'm um, just revealing my life as a teenager too. Submission to authority creates a depth that changes who you are. I'm talking a well that you can draw from deeply, regularly, over and over again, so that you can live with victory and this divine reversal regularly. 
I know that lands on everybody. I know we have our own things now, all of us. This is what the Christian life is all about. When we read Esther, we can look at it and go, I see God's in control, and I see he cares for me, and deliverance will come one way or the other. And so for such a time as this, I'm going to step up to the plate, and I'm going to commit to what I'm called to do. And some of you have to step up to the plate and say, I no longer can stand for this or believe in this or act this way or think this way. I have to have God's intervention, and I'm going to submit to this so that I have victory in life. Because, remember what I said, we all have Haman inside of us. Every last one of us has a Haman in us, and evil tends to reproduce and create more evil. And the only way to purge that is through the divine reversal of the cross. Let me pray for you. The worship team can come up and do our closing song. I know it's, we're running a little late, but come on down. Father, We're grateful for the story of Esther. Man, what a fun, 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 fun story. I'm so glad that, that we get to walk through it and laugh and joke and just live it out, Lord, and even the celebration of Purim. Lord, help us to, to be people who love you and commit our ways to you and orient our life around you to experience the divine reversal in our lives that X marks the spot from this day forward, I will no longer be whatever it is. And so, Lord, help us. Give us a great Sunday. Help us to finish gathering together in worship. In Christ's name, amen. Please stand and let's sing together. <laughs>